Welcome, everyone. My name is Kapil Guy, and you're tuned in to the Finding Perspective podcast, where we share stories and get into deep conversation with the intent of educating our listeners to new insight, new ways of thinking, and of course, new perspectives. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Finding Perspective podcast. With today's episode, when we had done our initial recording, unfortunately, there were some issues with the audio. We have done our best to edit the interview to give you the best quality experience possible. So we thank you in advance today, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. So today I have a very special guest in the studio with me today. His name is Bhante Atulojo. Now, Bhante Atulo is a practicing monk who is based in the uh, greater Toronto area. And I've actually had the pleasure of meeting Bhante a few times in a few meditation classes that I have attended. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed his lectures, and which is why I've wanted to bring him onto the podcast to introduce to our listeners. Nice to be here with you, Kapil. Thank you so much. So before I begin, I just would like to know, where did you grow up? Uh, I actually grew up uh, mainly in Oshawa. Um, it's kind of the east, uh, eastern end of the GTA. And then in high school, I moved to uh, Pickering, Pickering, Ontario. Yeah. And then in university, I lived in Toronto. In university. Okay. And where did you go to university? I went to Ryerson. At Ryerson? Yeah. Well, what did you study there? I, I took business. Yeah. Business? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to you. Uh, the listeners can't see physically, but I see you're wearing the traditional monk outfit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see a, uh, an individual who grew up in the Greater Toronto area, went to Ryerson, studied business. Business. Um, how did you? How did you become a monk? Um, well, it was kind of uh, uh, it was a slow process. Somebody kind of uh, gave me a book. Uh, my mother actually gave me a book on Buddhism as a joke when I was in high school. And uh, didn't really have any intention of reading the book. Yeah. But um, uh, but then uh, one day I had nothing to read, and so uh, took the book along. And there was this uh, this section in there where it said uh, these are the kind of fundamental tenets of the Buddhist teaching. And uh, I, I was pretty anti-religious, so I thought that uh, I would pretty much disagree with it, and there'd be a lot of holes. So I read those, uh, those tenets, which are called the Four Noble Truths. And by the time I finished reading, I was kind of converted to Buddhism. Really? Yeah. So it happened, <laughs> was it kind of like an old, it wasn't overnight, but um, it's your mother. And, and why did your mother choose to give you this book? That was kind of a joke. Because yeah. I, I, I used to be very kind of atheist mm. and uh, very kind of anti-religious. And so I, I, I would argue with people kind of very religious really yeah I do that kind of for fun and to uh, to kind of uh, I guess you say poke them I would say I was a Buddhist mm-hmm. especially yeah, mostly I knew yeah so she got me that book as a joke right yeah so. and, and did she ever so was she surprised to see the outcome of it to, to see where it all led you to probably yeah I don't think she had the intention that uh, sometime later I would become a monk but that was when I was 18 yeah and, uh, didn't become a monk till I was 27. So it was, you know, 10-year period. So the 10-year period. Yeah. Um, and and what do you think, what was it that decided you to go on to that journey to actually, you know, taking that pledge and becoming a monk? Uh, it was just very slow. 
Um, there was nothing, it wasn't like a kind of uh, anything too dramatic. So I, and I like Buddhism and uh, was, you know, trying to use it for the, the usual reasons that people in the West uh, come to Buddhism, basically trying to, uh, you know, maybe get better grades and <laughs> have, uh, you know, maybe at that time have like uh, relationships with these kind of things, yeah. basically worldly goals. Right. But that uh, meditation would help me, um, you know, basically uh, uh, using it for that purpose. And so uh, basically going along and using uh, the Buddhist teachings for that purpose for, for a chunk of time, for, you know, not that it was some kind of evil intention thing, mm-hmm. just that was what interested me. Um, but then there was this point in university where, uh, you know, previously I'd always been using the meditation and the Buddhist teachings to supplement my life. But uh, then there was this time I came back from a retreat and I, I kind of realized that my life was starting to get in the way <laughs> of my meditation. Yeah. So, uh, so for that reason, uh, that was, I guess you would call the tipping point where I felt like, okay, I'm getting more uh, happiness from my uh, uh, from my spiritual practice and from my worldly life. So, so did you did you feel that um, now did you feel like a void prior to choosing Buddhism, or did you feel like there was something inside you that was missing or a calling? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Well, I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, not sure. I would put it in any super, you know, like uh, super, you know, like the biography of, uh, you know, some of these famous spiritual teachers who you know, maybe know from a young age that they have a spiritual calling. It wasn't like that. I was, I was mainly interested in like worldly things. Like I wanted to do well at school. I wanted to <laughs> yeah. have a girlfriend. I wanted to have a stable mental state, right. you know, all these basic things that people you know, basically psychological goals that are present in Western society. That's what I went to Buddhism for. Right. Um, so, uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, uh, my purpose in coming to Buddhism wasn't anything, you know, wasn't anything like uh, too profound. I guess you, I guess you'd say, right. I, well, I guess you'd say my, uh, my initial entrance into Buddhism, what I used it for initially was not <laughs> wasn't too profound. And, um, so you grew up in, you grew up in, uh, the East end of the GTA. Um, did you grow up with a, with a following a certain religion prior to Buddhism? No, my family was, uh, you know, probably like a typical uh, Canadian family. They uh, they came here in the, in the 20s, 1929. My great-grandfather came here, and they were Christians. Mm-hmm. But probably like most... In what country did they come from? Uh, my mother's family came from Germany. Okay. My father's family came from Africa. Okay. So, uh, uh, I, yeah, so they uh, they were mainly, uh, mainly uh, my family's mainly Christian. Uh, but, you know, by my mother's generation, like most places in Canada, Christianity as a cultural force had, had uh, lost, uh, you know, some of its momentum. So, you know, my family by that time, although they had a Christian background, probably was mainly agnostic. Agnostic, okay. Yeah. And do you still have a strong relationships with your family members? Well, yeah, well, yeah, I see them pretty, uh, yeah. yeah. I see them uh, time to time, all that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. Yeah, I see them regularly. So, really? Yeah, it just depends where you live. Like, if you live in Thailand, then you won't. Yeah. And your family lives in North America. And, and how do they feel about your choice to, to become a monk? How did they feel about it? I think because it was so gradual. Yeah. Um, uh, it was probably less shocking than if I, you know, was, you know, it was like an overnight change. Right. Yeah. So I think they had lots of time to prepare. They had lots of time to prepare. Um, so, and they were accepting of it? 
Yeah, yeah. I think thankfully, you know, my family is kind of very uh, liberal. As you say, liberal-minded people. So they have kind of the idea that if you're, uh, you know, if you're uh, uh, if you're happy and you're not hurting anybody, then yes. that's fine. So you have your choice, your profession. And when you do um, give meditation classes at the Buddhist temple and you do lectures, have they ever come out to to, to the classes? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, my mother, especially, she comes to you know. Uh, to start with sort of like that too. Yeah. So, yeah. Do, you have, do you have any siblings? No, I'm an only child. You're an only child, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you said that this was a, a gradual process. So you said between 18 to 27, um, you were, I guess, you know, you're experiencing life, you know, figuring out, figure, figuring it out, uh, being a young adult. Um, now, after graduating Ryerson, did you work for a little bit or... I uh, know. So I didn't actually graduate. Okay. It was, uh, I decided to become a monk. So I left school. And uh, what age was this? Uh, I would have been 23, 22, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, left, I went to the temple. Oh, okay. Yeah. I there full time. And uh, then worked to pay off my student loan for a year. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, um, you know, a lot of the friends that you had prior to, um, becoming a monk. Um, are you still in contact with any of those friends? Yeah, yeah. And, and do you guys see each other often? Um, it would be much less often just because, you know, as a monk, you have a lot of restrictions in terms of what you can do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, oftentimes, like, a, maybe like a friendship, you know, you'll get together and watch right. a movie or go out for dinner. But as a monk, you can't do those things. So Right. Um, and also what you're, what you're talking about is different now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, having said all that, you know, there's still times you, you know, together from time to time and see how they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, so prior to becoming a monk, I mean, yes, you said you guys were going for dinners or going to movies, but after that, so the way that you guys get together is different. It's in different settings now. I'm, I'm Usually like probably be like a coffee shop. Right. 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 Okay. Something like that. Like, you know, we'll meet for like a tea if it's, yes. Especially if you go away somewhere and then come back, you haven't seen them for a while, then, then you catch up and see how they're doing. Have a tea. Something like that you can do as a monk. No problem. And was it was it a more or less a shock to them as well? I mean, your family was kind of aware of where you were going in your journey, but with your friends, was it a similar response? Probably everybody saw it coming, right? Because yeah. it was very gradual. Um, and, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, the turning point would have been at least uh, the most, I don't know, shocking is the word, but surprising thing would have been when I entered the temple full time instead of going to school. So, uh, but um, they, they were all, you know, they were all generally very supportive. Some of them came to my ordination as a monk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Wonderful. Um, and what exactly is an ordination? That's when you become a monk. Okay. Yeah, so you um, typically, uh, in the Western, you know, I, where I ordain is a tradition which is called the Thai forest tradition. And uh, uh, in that tradition, in order to become a monk, you have to spend uh, two years prior to uh, actually becoming a monk. You spend one year as a postulant, and then one year as what's called like a novice. And the number of rules you have in each of those years goes up. So the time for you to see if you like the monastery, or if you don't, if they if things work out basically between you and the monastery, um, mm-hmm. yeah, going both ways. And so if all that works out, then you receive what's called ordination. It's, uh, that's when you're officially accepted 
as a Buddhist monk. And that kind of ordination is something that's recognized by Theravada monks basically all over the world. So after that, you become part of a very big uh, family. It kind of requires, uh, uh, requires at least five monks to do. Right, yeah. And then there's, there's different steps involved in that. But at the end, that's when you become a monk. And was your monk training, was it within, was it in Canada? Was it somewhere else in the world? Yeah, it was in Canada, near Ottawa. Yeah, Ottawa, Ontario. So they've, um, thankfully, they, at that time, they were, they were just, the, that monastery had just been established. And uh, that's, I think, the only place at present in Canada where you can uh, ordain as a monk in the English language in the Theravada tradition. Most of the places around are kind of... Uh, uh, more specifically suited to serving the community mm-hmm. and to train monks you need to have like special facilities and this kind of thing. I know when at the uh, the temple um, there are some sayings that you do recite. Uh, I think it's in Pali. Uh, yeah. It's in Pali. So what is Pali and what, you know, who speaks Pali? Yeah, so Pali was the um, you know, traditionally regarded as the language that the Buddhists spoke. And sometimes you hear it referred to as Magadhi. The place where the Buddha lived was called, uh, well, the main, one of the main centers where he taught was called Magadha. That's okay. where he attained uh, enlightenment. It's kind of like a province. It was a kingdom. Okay. Was this in India? It was in India, yeah. North, uh, northeastern India. And so uh, they have Sanskrit, which is the kind of traditional language that the Brahmins would use for their hymns. And Pali is like, um, like a common person's Sanskrit. So it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know what a good English equivalent would be, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know, Sanskrit was the kind of higher, like lit- liturgical language. Okay. Pali was like the common man's version of that. So the oh, Buddhist okay. text got recorded in that, uh, that language. So, so is there a written form of Pali? There, actually, at the time of the Buddha, there was no, they didn't use writing that much. They had it, but it wasn't used to record important things. Right. People memorized that. So... Uh, Pali doesn't really have a standard alphabet coming from India. Instead, it, it basically just adopts the native alphabet wherever it goes. So, oh, okay. Yeah, traditionally, the first time the canon was written down, the Pali canon was in Sri Lanka. So if you had to choose one script, that might be the most traditional, I guess. But really, uh, really, it's, Pali is written in almost every script in every Buddhist country, I think, uh, where Theravada Buddhism is the main kind. And um, are there different streams of Buddhism? Yeah, yeah, there are. Uh, there's, uh, there's three different streams of Buddhism, They're kind of similar to the Abrahamic faiths, where you have Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam. In Buddhism, you have what's called uh, Theravada, you have what's called uh, Mahayana, and you have what's called uh, Vajrayana. All of them originated in India, but uh, Buddhism was wiped out of India with the invasions from uh, 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 invasions from Turks, and that was kind of the death blow for Buddhism in India. And so, with the, the Turks and kind of Islam controlling the Central Asia and India, Central area in Asia, uh, the three main portions of Buddhism got separated from each other. Okay, so Theravada became centered in Sri Lanka. What you call Mahayana became centered in East Asia, kind of like China and uh, Korea, like these places. And what we call uh, Vajrayana became centered in Tibet. And so they all they were all separated from each other for a long time. Maybe it was like about a thousand years. So they developed very distinct um, uh, 
uh, I guess you'd say expressions of Buddhism being separated for that that uh, that long of a time. Really interesting. Um, I didn't know about this at all. Um, and when you were kind of going through your spiritual journey, did you look into different religions as well, other than Buddhism? Uh, not really. It wasn't like I didn't really have like a, you know, like a kind of. I wasn't really seeking to fill a spiritual void. Uh, so you could say like it, I didn't. I didn't even know I had. Well, you know, Buddhism just answered a question. You know, I wasn't really aware that I, it even had the answer. Yeah. So after I found Buddhism, I didn't really look too much at other, other religious space. Other, okay. Yeah. Understood. And I just want to backtrack a little. So, I mean, you said that you did mention, like, you know, at some point you were just like, you know, same thing. You wanted to get a job and look for relationships and uh, a lot of these things. So I know, I know, like, as, a, as, as human beings, as physical being, um, I'm guessing that when you choose this life, you have to give up quite a bit. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just but yeah. <laughs> uh, did it did it seem very difficult for you to, you know, give up the life that you had known? Um, well, again, it, it was a very gradual process. So, um, and the way that it's structured in your training, you can leave at any time. So it's not like you're, you know, all of a sudden there's this kind of light switch flip and you have, you know, it's more like you're going through this. Well, at least in my case, you're going through this gradual process where at any of the stages you're free to. Really free to head back. So, did you did you see people leave during the training? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It's uh, it's pretty common. Um, so yeah, yeah. If people want to leave, they can leave anytime, even after they become monks. There's no. And are you allowed to come back or? Yeah. You just you just restart your seniority. Mm -hmm. Got it. So you have to start again from the, you know, from when you become a monk, you have to live in what's called dependence. Holy word for that is nisaya. nisaya. You have to live under a teacher for five years. And so during that time, you always have to be with a teacher except for certain exemptions. Right. So you always have to be under a senior monk. And he's always kind of watching him for you. It's kind of like being, uh, being re-raised. Being re-raised, okay. So, you know, traditionally, if you, if you left and came back, you'd have to go, you'd have to do that again. Right. Yeah. So you have to have per ask permission when you want to leave, all this kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Um, so, and how, how many years have you been a practicing monk for? So I've been a monk now for, uh, it'll be nine years on the 14th, I think. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Getting close next year to your 10-year anniversary. Yeah, 10 years. <laughs> yeah, next year is 10 years. Okay. You go by, you go by the name Bante Adolojo? Uh, yeah, usually in Chinat I go by uh, uh, Bante Jo Atulo. Okay. So, um, and there's different ways people can address monks. Yeah. Uh, the classic one is Bhante. Bhante. That's what they call the Buddha. And then when the Buddha passed away, he, he's the, one of the last things he said to the monks was, before you guys had been calling each other friend. So they'd say like friend, Ananda, friend, sorry, Buddha. That's what they call each other. He said that after I pass away, you shouldn't call each other that anymore. You should, the junior monks should call the senior monks Bhante. Mm -hmm. Or that there was another word too. And, uh, and the senior monks should refer to the junior monks by their name or as Awuso, which means friend. So that's the kind of most classic. But each culture has its own translations. Yeah. So usually there'll be some honorific. You wouldn't just use your given name. So in Thailand, they'll call it Tan. Tan, okay. Yeah. For senior monks, they say Ajahn. In Burma, I think they might say like Sayadaw, something like that. In Korea, they call it, they say Sunim. Sunim, okay. They have all these, so it's all kind of 
but the tradition is you always put that first. You put that first. Okay. It's kind of nice as well because you can call any monk that, so you don't have to necessarily memorize the okay. names. And then, uh, and then in the Thai tradition, um, you are in the Thai tradition. They use their uh, they use their first name, yeah. like their nickname. Okay. So you'll use Bunte or whatever honorific, then your nickname. Then at your ordination, you're also given a monk's name. So that becomes like your first and last name almost after the honorific. Like your, right. your nickname, then your monk's name becomes like your last name. That's how you're referred to. Okay. Um, so is that okay if I just refer to you as Bunte? That's, oh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. So, and, and you can tell me if I'm allowed to ask you this or not, but are you able to disclose like, what your name was prior to? Yeah, it was Joe. Oh, it was Joe? Yeah. It was after Joe. Okay. <laughs> Oh, yes. So in Thailand, it's your your honorific. Yes. Then your nickname. Uh, then your monk's name. Okay. So, so yeah. what does atolo mean? Atolo it means uh, like tolo means to weigh or compare, and then ah in in Indian language is often a negation, so it means like mm -hmm. incomparable. So right when I was given that name, I said, "Well, that's a that's a lot to live up to." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you um do you ever look back at the life you had before and kind of you know? think about it like what you had or think back. Yeah. Did you ever look back at it? Uh, in what way? I guess not, not, not in a sense of regret, but in the sense of like, Oh, well, you know, if I was still, you know, living the life I had, maybe things would have been easier. Maybe it would have, you know, like, did you ever just look back and like, and, and just think that, you know, what if I still had that life? Well, basically, you know, probably, I mean, almost certainly everybody would think, okay, you know, if I did this, this would have happened, or if I did that, that would have happened. As a monk, you kind of try to, in general, like train yourself to, to think, well, you know, a lot of the speculations about mm -hmm. what would have been or could have been or should have mm -hmm. been, those, a lot of those are just delusions. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in my case as well, I mean, I, I had a pretty, I had a pretty full day life, kind of, uh, you know, with I wasn't really, I wasn't a secluded person. Mm. So I, I, uh, I kind of still remember mm. what it was like. So, uh, and then having become a monk, um, I think many Western monks, at least, you know, they become monks after having lived, you know, a fairly long time as lay people. So, you know, the reasons at least, uh, at least I feel, um, I think most monks who are still monks can always change. You never know a hundred percent, but, I feel like the reasons for which I became a monk are still still valid. I still, I still remember. And has there been times that perhaps like you ran into an old friend years after and they've seen you in your traditional monk out, monk outfit? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Plenty of times, I think. <laughs> what have those interactions usually been like? Uh, well, I think it's nice, largely because of the Dalai Lama. Um, uh, people, I think, have a pretty positive impression of Buddhism. So, like, the people I bump into, you know, especially, they may be surprised that you yeah. ended up as a monk. But, you know, I think they're generally, like, supportive and happy for you. Actually, just yesterday, or two days ago, I ran into somebody I hadn't seen for, like, 15 years. Mm. And, uh, you know, he recognized me. I knew him when I was, uh, when I was in high school. Yeah. And yeah, it was a nice, friendly uh, conversation. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was really, really, it was really supportive. And, you know, we didn't really talk about Buddhism that much, but it just it had a nice uh, feel to it. Mm. Yeah, 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 understood. And um, so the, I know that um, you know, prior to having you here, we, we talked a lot about your uh, diet. 
Okay. Yeah. We, we talked about this a little bit, actually. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know more. Um, uh, like the Because you said that monks have to eat by a certain time of the day. Yeah, yeah. So uh, according to the monastic rules, you have to finish eating by by midday, solar noon. Solar noon, okay. Yeah. So whenever the sun's at the highest point, that's when you have to stop. And what, what time do you usually wake up in the morning? Uh, it can vary depending on where a monk is living and kind of what the schedule of the monastery is. Mm-hmm. So as far as eating goes, you have to, you can't eat uh, until dawn. So can't from, get to dawn. from dawn until noon. So it's always changing depending, you know, in Canada too, right? The light changes a lot of the time during the year. And then there's mm-hmm. daylight savings time. So. Yeah, like today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, and what does your meals consist of? Like, we usually... So, uh, so monks basically just, you have to, ex- well, you don't have to, but you can't cook food for yourself. You can't store food. Oh. And you can't, um, so you can't cook food, store food. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a bunch of things. So basically you, you're reliant on lay people to, to prepare food for you and then to offer it. You can't, you can't eat food unless somebody puts it into your hand. Really? Or into something that's attached to your hands. So you can accept it on the tablecloth. Yeah. Somebody puts it there. But they basically have to be in your physical presence offering that food from dawn till noon at some point. Dawn till noon. So that's like, okay. And what is the reason for that? Uh, I think that the Buddha, one of them at least, is that the Buddha didn't want monks to become complete hermits. It, it forces a link between monks and lay people. So they're kind of interdependent yes. on one another. That's one thing. Um, another thing is that in traditions where this practice of like almsgiving or monks being reliant on food uh, might die away, the monastic life can become stratified with only a few monks being able to devote themselves to meditation practice uh, because other monks have to become engaged in things like farming or administration, whatever it might be. But the way that the Buddha set it up, just a huge number of people could potentially devote themselves full-time to spiritual practice uh, because of this, uh, this interdependence of the laity and the monks. The laity prepare the food, the monks engage in full-time practice, the monks teach the laity. It's, it's, a, it's a virtuous circle, I guess you'd say. And what's the term? Laity? L- laity? Laity. What is that? Just, just means non, you know, traditional religious vocabulary. That just right. means non-monastics. Yeah. Right. And so as a monk, are you allowed to eat meat? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you are able to eat meat. Yeah. You're able to eat. Yeah. So, so basically because people are offering you food, mm-hmm. more or less whatever they prepare, yeah. unless you have a stomach ailment, you, oh. you, you try to eat because you don't, you, you don't get to choose your food. Oh, so you could chicken, pork, beef, you could eat anything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's certain things you can eat, but you, you probably just never encounter those. Like you can't eat snakes, lions, okay. dogs, can't eat human. Yeah. So, you know, people, you know, in North America don't usually cook those. So, so in order for you to accept a meal from me, I have to cook it for you. It would have to be prepared by somebody. You yourself wouldn't have to cook it, but yeah. you, for example, it could be purchased from a grocery store and then brought to me, but it has to be handed to me. I, I can't cook it. Oh, it has to be between the hours of dawn and noon. That's right. Every day. So when you see monks going around with their bowl, I don't yeah. know if you've ever seen that in traditional Buddhist countries. No, I've not. So it's called alms round monks. Most monks have a big bowl. And in traditional monks in the Theravada tradition have a big bowl. And the purpose of that bowl is they would walk into the village and each house, maybe or many houses, would put a little something in the bowl. Okay. And so in that way, your bowl gets filled up. That's how you get your meal for the day. 
And then you go back to your dwelling and that's how you uh, subsist. You can devote the rest of your time to spiritual practice. That is very interesting. Um, and are, are monks able to drink alcohol? No. No? No. Okay. Like even Buddhist laity, that's traditionally forbidden. Yes. Okay. Understood. There's this term that you always use. Um, I've heard you say it's called metta. Oh, okay. What is that term? What does metta mean? So metta is basically the Buddhist, the Buddha's recommendation for, for love. So it, it kind of means, um, it means an attitude of goodwill, but uh, ideally without a personal attachment to people. So because it has this, there's this attitude of goodwill, but without personal attachment, it means that it's something that can lead to freedom from hatred. So uh, when, when a person, it's actually, metta is often used as a meditation object. That's its traditional use as a meditation object to counter hatred. Okay. And uh, in doing so, you kind of spread this attitude of goodwill, wishing may all beings be well, may all beings be happy, may all beings be at ease. And uh, that attitude of goodwill also comes from a recognition <clears throat> that in order to be truly happy, beings have to put the causes into place for themselves. So what it doesn't mean is like, say, if somebody's robbing or plundering, you know, doing something evil, that somehow you wish that they become like better at that or something like that. But it comes from a recognition that true happiness comes from putting the right causes into place. So what you're really wishing for, and only, a, only that person can do that for themselves. So what you're really wishing for is that people find the way to put the right causes into place for happiness. So because it has this conception of, Goodwill, it means you can really wish it for anybody, even somebody who's your enemy, and even somebody who's terribly evil, because if they become happy, it'll be good for you too. <laughs> so traditionally, this, this metta, that's seen as the uh, cure for hatred in Buddhism. We, um, we often hear that the ego is what can tear an individual apart, uh, one's own ego, um, and, on, and, you know, I think in, in recent years, I've been, you know, really been aware of that, aware of, aware of my own personal ego, and when I can see it, it can be, it can be hurting me. Um, do, are, I guess what I want to ask is, are monks aware? Do monks, are they able to control their ego better, or are monks aware of their own ego? Do you, do you feel that you, you often, do you ever feel like your ego can be, um, you know, active in you? Um, so like, as far as the, I think, you know, people in the West, we use the term like ego as like, uh, you know, maybe as like, um, uh, a synonym for conceit almost like, you know, somebody has a big ego means they think they're really great. Yes. So in Buddhism, there's a word that's kind of overlapping with the concept with that particular way of using the word ego. I think in psychology, it was a thing that it had a maybe a little different meaning, like the traditional psychological meaning. But in Buddhism, there's this word like bhava. Bhava means becoming. So there's this idea that through the way that a person directs their mind, they're always becoming something. So that might be what people would use this word ego for. Okay, you become something. Okay, you want to become something. Okay, that's it. They might say that's somebody trying to build up an ego. But in Buddhism, there are, uh, there are things to be developed. 
So for that, we need to have this desire to become something. We have to, if we want to get rid of hatred, we have to have the desire to develop meta. This is, you know, to use that word ego loosely, I and mean, we're developing <laughs> an ego around that, right? Right. If we want to become people who are diligent meditators, people who put forth a lot of effort, then we have an ego around that. Not to say conceit, but in terms of we're building an identity as a person who is developing that. But all these aspects of, you know, again, to use this word ego in, in, the, in the way, you know, just the normal way, uh, of like developing ego or developing uh, a, a type of becoming, they're for the sake of going beyond them. So it's kind of like climbing a ladder in Buddhist practice where you develop, uh, you develop something like a, for the sake of like grabbing onto one rung and then going up another one. And at the end of the path, you let go of the ladder entirely. So that's when you get rid of one of the last things to go on the Buddhist path to enlightenment is this uh, uh, mental fetter, which is called asmimana, which means the conceit I am. So it means basically you uh, have a sense that you're a being in a, in a world of experience. And that's a conceit. That's one of the very last things to go. But until it goes, you have to use it. You have to use it to develop a higher, uh, uh, higher qualities of mind right. for the sake of abandoning entirely, kind of like climbing the ladder. So as a monk, a person would want to have a sense of where, they, where their good qualities are, where their bad qualities are, for the sake of getting rid of the bad ones, developing the good ones. And so in that sense, there's the recommendation to have ego. Yeah. So I guess, I guess from what I'm taking out is that in the West, we kind of view ego with a negative connotation mm -hmm. and from your explaining to me is that it maybe we just we're not looking at it the same way that perhaps can that is looked at in the, in the buddhist uh way of life yeah well uh yeah i think it, in the west um at least when buddhism came to the west uh i think in traditional psychology the ego was the thing that regulated between the superego and the id Kind of, you know, see how your base desires, you've got your kind of like intelligent faculty or whatever right. it is, and then the ego is what regulated them. But in Buddhist parlance, it, it, it took on this kind of like amorphous, you know, like the way that it got used in Buddhist circles, maybe the early days of Buddhism. Uh, I mean, you can see some reasoning behind it, but it has this like amorphous quality to it where it's sometimes this like little scheming thing in the back of your head. So it's kind of hard to even pin down what it is. Right. But it just tends to mean like a person having some type of conceit. That, that term can be used in all types of ways. But yeah, in terms of the way that the Buddha described it, we have to have a certain type of, you know, quote unquote conceit. We have right. to have this desire to become something for the sake of uh, developing wholesome qualities. Understood. Um, and um, I, 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 see that, um, I see that you're very active on social media. Um, I know that you're on Facebook. I've seen you on Instagram. Um, you have a cell phone. To be honest, I was not expecting this. And I feel like most people don't think, uh, don't see monks, view monks having this. And I think when they even listen to this podcast, a lot of them are going to be a little surprised as well. Uh, a lot of people here in North America view monks as living in mountains and somewhere in India or somewhere in Southeast Asia. What can, what can you tell us about that, about monks living in urban cities across North America um, and why is this perception that, like, why do we have this perception that, oh, monks can't have cell phones, monks can't have social media? What's going on here? Um, well, I think, you know, probably traditionally, 
um, monks, you know, a monk's role is to engage full-time in spiritual practice traditionally, and then to, to do teaching. And so, you know, for that purpose, monks traditionally spend time in seclusion, like in caves, mountains, you know, jungles, you know, all the classical things. In Canada, Buddhism is very, very new. And so, as we were talking about before, basically for a monk to survive, they have to, in the Theravada tradition, they have to have like a community of people who are willing to offer them food. Mm-hmm. If they don't have that, then they can't survive. So maybe in the future in Canada, there will be enough Buddhists that say a monk could just wander into the great Canadian wilderness and live there and then come out into the village. And at that time, we might have the same uh, cultural perceptions of monks in Canada that they do in Asia. Mm-hmm. But at the present time, there's very few Buddhists in Canada, and most of them are in urban areas. There's a few forest monasteries in North America, um, but in those forest monasteries, you can't it, you can't really just leave and go wandering out to the mountains. Mm-hmm. It's not enough Buddhists. The, the Buddhists come to the forest monasteries to, to practice there. So for that reason, um, uh, that cultural model hasn't been possible to entirely adopt here yet. The second thing is, as far as the use of uh, social media, is that basically, you know, uh, monks have rules that prohibit them from doing certain things, like kind of certain things that are kind of, uh, you know, bad for their spiritual practice. Like what? Oh, just many. There's actually 227. Okay. So, uh, yeah, there'd be many, many. You know, we talk a little bit, bit about alcohol, a little bit about food, mm-hmm. entertainment. There's basically just about everything. But for things that didn't exist in the Buddhist time, you basically have to compare it to the rules that do exist, right? And if they prohibit that, then you can't do it. But uh, social media, like using a cell phone or uh, using Facebook or Instagram, if you use it as a means of communication, then there's nothing in the rules to prohibit that. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're using it to, you know... uh, like say, you know, Bhante Srinapala is very good using it for Dhamma talks or mm. uh, other things than, you know, in the rules. I mean, there's really no difference between doing that in a virtual sense and, and, and a, you know, in a face-to-face sense. If you were to use social media to do things that broke the rules, then that, was, that would be where the rules become active. So in other words, the way the monastic rules are modeled is that these things, these new technologies that arise, they become tools. And if you use that tool in such a way that it breaks the rules, that's not allowable. But if you use that tool in, in such a way that it's in conformity with the Buddhist lifestyle, then that's fine. Is that why you use it for those purposes? Or to, to get the message out on, of, of regarding Buddhism? Uh, well, basically, you know, I was kind of, you know, monks tend to be, you know, a little conservative. So, you know, just because a new technology comes, it doesn't necessarily mean everybody will jump on the bandwagon. Mm. But uh, after coming back to the city, uh, I just found that that was, over time, I, I found that was the way people communicated. And especially uh, through Bhante Sranapala's example, I, I probably wouldn't have thought of it myself, but then it's like, where is everybody these days? <laughs> I have been yeah. away from the city for, for almost uh, for seven years. And so coming back here, I didn't know what people did. And so then after I started using social media, um, well, well, this is where everybody is. <laughs> this is how yes. they're communicating these days. So. So, and you also, so I, I want to talk a little bit more about the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have, you said there's rules regarding entertainment. Yeah. So can you elaborate on that a little? 
Uh, we can't go see singing and dancing shows, which basically means, you know, movies are going to be out. Mm-hmm. Uh, legend recitations in the Buddhist time were kind of banned. So in general, that tends to flip over into reading fiction mm-hmm. for entertainment purposes. Um, uh, let's see. So basically all types of entertainment, aside can, from like walking and talking. Can you read for pleasure? Uh, you could probably read nonfiction. Yes say like history books, mm-hmm. but it would be something that, uh, you know, ideally you, you wouldn't do unless it was necessary. Right. And from my understanding, there's monks that are male and there's also monks that are female. Yeah. So the, yeah, the males are called the bhikkhus and the females are traditionally called the bhikkhunis or bhikshunis. Yeah. Okay. And are they, are they kind of separated? Uh, not always. Very often they are. Um, uh, uh, some monasteries have both living together, but traditionally they live apart in separate monasteries, but they come together for uh, you know, certain religious functions. Wonderful. I actually did attend the, I think it was World Buddhism Day oh. at, uh, at one of the temples in, in, in the GTA. So that was interesting where I saw different types of uh, Buddhist monks come together. So it was, it was really interesting. Um, so but what I saw, really what I saw in that was a community. So I saw a community of monks you know, coming together. And what can you tell me about the community of monks in the GTA? Uh, does it more or less feel like a family? Um, does it feel just like a group of people that, you know, this is, that have just chosen this life? Like, what does that feel like, that community? Yeah, well, you know, it, it's interesting you ask that because Buddhism uh, originated 2,500 years ago in India. But the Buddha's emphasis on like a communal harmony, especially hospitality, was very strong. And so it was amazing, actually, when I, I came to Toronto, I, I ordained in a tradition that comes from Thailand, and most of the temples here are Sri Lankan. But basically, I just showed up at the temples, and uh, it was almost like being a member of the family. Mm-hmm. It just basically integrated me into the temple and into the community uh, with almost just no question. They ask who your, who your preceptor is. Mm-hmm. It means like they, they want to find out where you ordained. But that's the thing, when you become a monk, there is still this, uh, this very strong feeling that you're kind of a part of a very large family. So the way that the Buddha put it, there was this one time when uh, he was living in a monastery and there was a monk who was sick with dysentery and he was lying in his bed and he was kind of messy mm-hmm. in the bed. And the Buddha was going around looking at the dwellings and he saw that monk uh, in the dwelling. And he said, uh, what's your illness? He said, I have dysentery. And then he said, well, why aren't the other monks taking care of you? And he said, I'm not of any use to them. That's why they're not taking care of me. And so then he went to the other monks and he said, what's that monk's illness? And like, he has dysentery. And he said, why is nobody taking care of him? Yeah. And then the other monks said, well, he's not of any use to us. And so then uh, the Buddha said, you know, monks, you, you, you've left home. You don't have any mother and father. So if you don't take care of each other, who's going to take care of you? And then the Buddha himself went with his attendant. And they picked him up and washed that monk off. Right. So from, uh, from that story and from that attitude, there's this very strong, uh, sense of, uh, uh, of fraternity right. among monks, even of the different traditions. Yeah. So. And you know, it, when you, um, when you are in the temple and you are giving your lectures and you're, um, leading the meditation classes, does it ever feel like, people come to, because I, I come to you with questions all the time. You know, I have so many questions for you that I can 
to help me. That's actually for me, it feels therapeutic. Do you feel like people view uh, meditation as a form of therapy? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, that's the traditional role of religion in a way. I mean, uh, nowadays, with the decline of religion in general, um, people are looking for, for ways to, uh, to make their mind happy. And that was traditionally done, not just in Buddhism, but also within Catholicism, Christianity, Islam. That was traditionally done within a religious philosophy. Right. But uh, now that the main philosophy is science, uh, psychotherapy is the kind of mode that people go through, uh, you know, basically to, to serve the same goals. So the traditional role of a monk is, uh, you know, is basically to try to help people in, in that way yeah, if you can. So, and when you look into psychotherapy, do you see similarities with that in the Buddhist teachings? Well, I think nowadays um, psychotherapy has adopted a lot of uh, a lot of. Um, it has been inspired by many elements of Buddhist philosophy, and so probably modern psychotherapy uh, in its present form. Is uh, has elements that overlap with Buddhism. Um, I think having adopted those from the Buddhist practices, uh, traditional psychotherapy, like uh, maybe um, maybe the intent in a lot of these things would be similar, which is basically to help people. Right, yeah. right. And um, well, we we live in times where I feel people, a lot of people, are struggling with finding our purpose. Um, you know, what can you tell uh, you, myself and the listeners about finding one's purpose? And if there's one thing that we should look for, look out for um, on our journey to purpose. I remember when I was, uh, was a young man and I was in uh, grade seven, the teacher put up or asked the class, so what do you think your purpose in life is? And so uh, I put up my hand and I said, you know, I think the purpose in life is to be happy. Right. And she's like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> so I kind of got that one wrong. But I think that's a very famous story. I think it was John Lennon who did the same thing. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. He was like, I think that's what I read online. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, going through uh, life, it, that was the question that I was trying to answer. And when my mother gave me that book, uh, I was amazed to see that the central tenets of Buddhism were directly addressed to that question. Basically, how to find a lasting happiness. So it's, it's pretty, I think, you know, thinking of it that way, it seems clear that the purpose of human life, the purpose of any life is to find happiness. That's what the reason people do everything they do. Okay. From animals to whatever it might be, people are looking for happiness. So as far as a purpose goes, that's the noblest one one can have, is to try to find happiness. The difference is the means by which people take to try to find happiness and how effective those means are. So, uh, so as far as trying to find a purpose, trying to find a purpose, I mean, our purpose, uh, at least from that philosophical perspective, is happiness. But probably the best thing that one could do if one wants to be satisfied in searching for a purpose is to evaluate <clears throat> how effective uh, one's pursuit of happiness is. How effective is it uh, in looking for it outside? How effective is it in cars and ha- and houses, whatever it might be? And it's when one evaluates things in this way that one starts to look for happinesses that are more satisfying. And that's the beginning of a spiritual quest. That's, uh, that's the beginning of a, of a search to find a happiness that's true. Try to find a happiness that doesn't change. You, uh, do you think a lot of us just don't know what happiness is? 
uh, I mean, it'd be hard to evaluate that, right? But, uh, you know, generally from the Buddhist perspective, there is I mean, pleasant things like chocolate bars or whatever are pleasant, but uh, they're limited, the happiness of those things. Temporary? They're, they're temporary, yes, and they're also not that satisfying. There's other types of happiness that people uh, can experience through spiritual practice that are much, much more satisfying that they can develop as a skill. So this is, uh, this is a thing. Until the person starts looking for more satisfying forms of happiness, that's the only happiness they know. And it's very difficult to imagine anything inside of that. It's kind of like a fish in water or like, you know, an animal on land. You don't know what it's like living under the water. But there's a whole other world there. And so... Similarly, you know, there's uh, there's whole other uh, whole other possibilities for happiness, for peace, and for satisfaction that lie outside of the realm of searching for it in, in external things. Like what? Like I, I'm just curious because you know when you said it, like a fish underwater, if you don't know anything else, how do you when you don't know what you don't know? How do you go about that? Well, that's one of the main reasons that traditionally, and I think in in, uh, in spiritual traditions, people look for a teacher. It's because there's a person who's already been down that road and they can help guide a person. It's also the reason that traditional spiritual literature uh, will have like dark nights of the soul where people undergo difficulties, they undergo uncertainties in their quest for a higher happiness. It's because they're stepping into something that's completely unknown. Right? They don't have the benefits of what they're searching for yet. And yet, at the same time, they're giving up some of the things that they know. So the spiritual, you know, in that way, um, uh, in that way, it can be difficult. But if a person has a good guide, like a teacher they have faith in, like the Buddha or you know, a living teacher, then uh, uh, then when one wants to look for that happiness, using that person as a guide, having kind of uh, confidence in them, then uh, then that can help. That can help a lot. Okay. Because, um, I mean, right now, I, I personally, I feel very satisfied with my career. Um, and I'm exploring and learning, and I'm looking for new experiences and, you know, trying new things in life. Um, but I'll be honest, I often come out feeling empty. Um, and sometimes I'm not even sure why. Um, you know, what, 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 what tips can you con- what, what tips can you give myself and perhaps others who are listening or avoid the same things? in regards to conquering emptiness and finding out why it is that we feel this emptiness, why it is that we feel this void. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's hard to say for each, each person. I think uh, maybe one of the things, you know, in general in Western culture, not speaking to a specific situation, is that um, without spiritual goals, without goals that, you know, transcend the material mm-hmm. things, then all we've got is material goals, which, you know, aren't terrible, as you mentioned. Like, careers can be very satisfying, very... Right. Um, you know, uh, scintillating, right? Um, but the thing is that uh, at the end of the day, they're not deeply satisfying. Maybe, right? You know, they don't. They can't satisfy forever. We all have to retire right? <laughs> one day. Um, so it's maybe a bit like you know eating a chocolate bar. I mean, there's you know it's tasty, right? But in terms of the nutrition it gives one, it's not the same as like eating some nice, healthy, you know, rice and you know, healthy curry that will maybe not as immediately tasty, right. but maybe longer lasting. So in terms of filling that void, in addition to a person having a wholesome career, yeah. one where they're you know not doing evil to anybody, I mean, people have entertainments in the world, they have their family to care for, all these things are places where people find happiness, and also to try to have a spiritual dimension 
to a person's life, to have spiritual goals in addition to world, in addition to one's yeah. worldly goals. So that can help. Spiritual goals, interesting. One way, one one way that I put it is, I always ask myself on my journey because I'm truly on my journey of purpose, um, and I often ask myself, you know, when I look back one day, what can I say that I've done for myself? What can I say that I've done for my family and my immediate loved ones? And what can I say that I've done for society? What can I say that I've done for somebody who I maybe I've helped someone? I don't even know who this person is. That's kind of one of the reasons why I started this podcast is to hopefully, you know, to, to touch someone in a different part of the world who I've never met. Um, you know, so that is one thing is the third, the third one, the last one is society. I think that's a part that I've been really focusing on as of late and seeing where I can go with that. Um, so I, I, I've been volunteering my time a lot with, uh, with the local high school, my, my old high school, and, you know, just giving guidance to a lot of the, the, the teenagers. Um, so recently, actually, I, I, I did a talk in my old high school, and um, I saw this, this one student sitting in the corner. And I could see that he was being a little distant. He wasn't interacting with any of the other students. But I could see it. I, I noticed that he was listening. He, he kind of seemed a little standoffish that he wasn't, you know, interacting with anyone else, but he was listening to me the entire time. So after the, uh, after, after the, you know, the, the, the talk that I did, he, um, he came up to me and he said, Hey, I, I want to shake your hand. And I said, okay, you know, thank you. And he's like, you know, everything you spoke about today, I feel like you spoke about my life. I can really relate to it. And we were just speaking and it, it ended up that actually I knew his aunt. It was really a really interesting story. So, after that, his, um, his teacher came up to me. She's like, I'm really happy you got this conversation with this student. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it, it really meant something to me as a teacher because those are the moments that I look for in my job. Those are the fulfilling moments because, you know, he's, he's a student that currently, uh, he's going through some things at home. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen him open up like that. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the moment, I just like literally just had a speech that I memorized and had this, I just, I just got it out of my system. So I was just... Mentally, I was just recuperating. And so when he said that to me, I was like, yeah, thank you. But I didn't really, it didn't, it didn't hit home yet. Mm-hmm. On my drive home, and once I got home, that's when it kind of sunk in. I'm like, wow, it felt great. Mm-hmm. And it really allowed me to feel full for some time. But that, that, that too was temporary. Mm-hmm. It felt great, it felt phenomenal. But then a few days after, I said, but I want to do that again. Mm-hmm. You know, so... I, I just want to know, like, even like, even though that that did let me feel full, it made me eventually that it did deplete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you about that. Is like, what what do we do with situations like? Then do I do I feel like okay? I need I inspired one student. I need to inspire ten more. Mm-hmm. Like, what do I like? like what do you do? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, so that's the reason why people turn to uh, traditionally why people in India, people all over the world, uh, myself have turned to Buddhism turn to the Buddhist teachings, it's because to use that metaphor of food, yeah, there's foods like that are quick satisfying, but maybe un, you know, maybe not that healthy the long run, like a chocolate bar. There's foods that are more satisfying and will allay hunger for a long time, longer time, like yeah, you eat some rice curry, you help a student out. And maybe the quick ones are like, okay, getting a promotion, I don't know, that's not a bad thing, but you know, or whatever it might be, going to see a movie, not necessarily bad, but you know. Uh, still not super satisfying. Uh, but in the end, so long as one is hungry, one will have to eat again. One won't find a permanent satisfaction in those things. So the, the purpose of the Buddhist spiritual quest is to try to find an end to the need to feed. This need to feed is what's termed craving. 
or desire or tanha, so long as a person has the desire for external, uh, external sensual, uh, external things, so long as a person has a desire to become, so long as a person has a desire not to become, whenever those three desires are present, no matter what a person has, no matter what happiness they have, will be fleeting. So the only way to find a permanent happiness is to cut those desires permanently. And when a person does that, that's when they find a happiness that doesn't change. Those are the things that block a true happiness. And the name for that happiness in Buddhism is Nibbana. Nibbana. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, that, that's beautiful. Um, it definitely gives me some, some insight towards how I can you know, continue, continue on that quest. Uh, before actually, actually, before I get back into these questions, I just have a quick question. What's your, what, do you have a favorite dish, favorite cuisine, or anything that you like to eat? Uh, well, you know, there's this uh, there's a teacher, uh, Adan Sinistro, and his, his teacher once got asked, like, what's your favorite dish or what, what food do you like to eat? And he said, food that's within reach. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as a monk, it's basically as long as uh, if people are, uh, are, if people are happy, you know, people are joyful. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, you don't have any sudden problems. Then you can eat it then. It's all good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so um, this one's a little bit, a uh, little bit heavy, or not heavy, but a little, a little bit more. Um, I was asked a question. <laughs> um, I feel it's important for all humans to be more empathetic to one another and to open up to our fellow community members and to show love to all of those who uh, we come in, into encounter with. Through my years, I've learned that a lot of us have shown love and have made ourselves vulnerable to others. But uh, this has, unfortunately, in some cases, resulted us in getting hurt, getting hurt really badly sometimes. And I, I think that perhaps that we feel we've lost the ability to love one another. Um, for someone who's going through this pain where, um, you know, they want to show love, but they feel like they've lost the, the, the ability to, what can we do to heal and to eventually get out of this rut and to get back to being the loving beings that we are meant to be? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, it's a good question. And in Buddhist thinking, um, we're not so much aiming, you know, I mean, the word love is used in many contexts, but say like the way it's often used in the West, one of the downfalls of love is that uh, in Buddhism, love is, is linked to hatred. So uh, it's interesting when, the, uh, when a person reaches the the what you call the penultimate the level before they reach enlightenment, they eliminate both lust and hatred at the same time. And so you see in divorce courts, those are apparently the most dangerous courts. <laughs> they have the most security guards. And those are yeah. people who were once, you know, in love with each other. So one of the reasons for this is that uh, people, when they fall in love, the, or they, they go to love another person, that person, in a sense, in, in the way love is used in the Western, uh, my understanding of when I was growing up uh, at that time, used in the Western world, is that, that person almost becomes like a part of oneself, or almost like one's, uh, not to, to use the term loosely, almost like one's possession. Right. So, uh, in other words, you open your, uh, one person opens themselves up to another person, makes them vulnerable, uh, shows them, you know, all their flaws. If that person takes advantage of that person, you know, of one, then it's like, well, what did you do that for? <laughs> you know, you weren't supposed to act that way. Right. Part of this comes from this idea that uh, there should be this very close uh, bond. And the way to do that is by becoming vulnerable. Right. 
And uh, indeed, close bonds can be formed if uh, both people share their vulnerability. But uh, in Buddhist thinking, that might not be the most skillful approach to human relationship um, uh, for the reasons that we just mentioned. So in showing one's vulnerability, people can take advantage. Another one is that when people create these very strong bonds, whatever that other person does, yanks on oneself, right? <laughs> so in Buddhism, as we mentioned a bit earlier, there's this attitude of, of like metta or goodwill. So rather than uh, showing one's vulnerability to, another, vulnerability to another person, one learns to have this attitude of goodwill. In other words, may you do well, may you find the ways to do well, and one learns to support that person as much as they can. But in Buddhist thinking as well, relationships between humans are always like um, a meeting place, right? So they're seen as a, as, a, as a set of mutual responsibilities. So in other words, we can only go halfway. The other person has to come the other half, right? And in going halfway, we don't go so far that we expose ourselves or hurt ourselves. Okay. We only go the distance to which we can help that person without harming ourselves, And that brings up another important point about giving in the Buddhist perspective. One of the things, when a person gives a gift, it's said to be the most beneficial to give it in five ways. One is that, give it out of faith in the Buddha, give it at the right time, give it respectfully, give it with a generous heart. And the last one, which is maybe not so, uh, at least growing up for myself, didn't know about in the West, was give it without denigrating oneself or without denigrating the other person. So in other words, when we give something to another person, we can't hurt ourselves. Mm. We can't leave ourselves in a position necessarily where another person is going to hurt us. So we just have to be very sensitive about where the middle point is in, uh, in trying to help other people. Uh, one of the Thai teachers put it this way, he said, don't have a falling down the well kindness. In other words, somebody's falling down the well, and you go to pull them out, and they pull you down the well. Then <laughs> you yeah. and that other person get hurt. Right. So, uh, so people can become jaded when they uh, when they open themselves up, when they give a lot, and that giving isn't returned. So, part of the way to in the Buddhist thinking to avoid that pitfall is to, in addition to metta, in addition to compassion, to also have wisdom acting as well. So they all act together as a team. And so we're always observing, how far can I go so that I can help this person in the right proportion right. without hurting them, without hurting myself? Right. And then when one behaves in that way, then if the other person doesn't meet halfway, if they don't go the distance, then we don't grab onto them, we don't fall down the well with them. So for somebody who feels jaded, somebody who feels, um, you know, they're, they're still hurt, what advice can you give that person in regards to overcoming that, that hurt? Because I, you know, in, in all aspects of my life, I mean, I, I feel like I've been that person. Sometimes I feel like I still am that person where you know, I feel like I'm given parts of myself and, you know, perhaps I've given too much in the sense that that person may have brought me down and I feel hurt. And when I meet other people and I can sense that in them as well, like, I kind of don't blame them. I kind of, I understand it because I've been through it. But, um, you know, for somebody who feels like they've been knocked down, how can they get back up? Well, part of it is to, uh, maybe just thinking about it, part of it is to recognize that, um, you know, that this is 
always the way it is. It's not the case that everybody one meets is going to be totally evil willing to take advantage. It's also not the case that everybody is going to be totally great. People, as humans in general, have this huge range of intentions that they're capable of. So, in other words, it might require a certain setback from the Western ideal of love. Mm. The Western ideal of love, two people give themselves almost entirely to mm. each other. And maybe a little bit more step uh, from that ideal in the direction of wisdom, in addition to you know, the elements we usually think of as love. Right? Think of compassion, we think of what we might call metta, think of goodwill. In addition, to have this wisdom and just think, okay, look, uh, previously I did this, I overreached, uh, and this person harmed me in the future, I'll be more careful. And then, uh, and then making that intention. And that way one can learn to forgive oneself, which is important. Look, I made a mistake in the future, I'll protect myself more. Not to become defensive, but look, you know, try to find that proper balance. The second thing is to recognize that uh, to whatever extent another person engages in bad actions, if they do something harmful towards another person, in Buddhism there's this law of karma, so nobody escapes that. So, in other words, we don't wish ill for that person. And we learn to have this attitude of metta towards anybody who's harmed us, like, may you become happy, may you become peaceful. Because to do that, they're going to have to adopt these good qualities. And in doing so, that'll brighten everybody's world. So when one actually starts to be able to spread this metta, to have this goodwill for that other person, that's where the second portion, perhaps, of this uh, uh, wound can be healed. This wound uh, might be partially directed towards oneself and might be partially directed outwards towards another person. The outer portion can be healed when one has this attitude of goodwill. Mm-hmm. basically not not necessarily wanting to like cuddle up to that person right. or whatever again but okay look may you be well happy and at ease uh, and then and then in terms of healing the wound uh, internally towards oneself learning to realize okay won't make that mistake again in my future relationships I'll be careful to respect myself yeah. try to if I'm giving a gift make sure it doesn't denigrate myself and to respect the other person if they're giving signs that they're going to do something mean to me and allowing them to go on their way so in that way, both those wounds have the potential for healing. I feel sometimes in this society that everyone kind of does something with their own self-interest, with their own, you know, I, I, I sometimes feel that people are doing things with, um, with, with benefit. Um, even if someone's, you know, giving a donation or giving something great, I, something inside me always says, like, well, someone's only doing this with, with certain intentions. Like it is for... Um, for their greater benefit. Perhaps they may disguise it in one way, but it is for, uh, for benefit. Now, I wanted to ask you, put, setting that all aside, you've still done something good. Whatever the reason was, is that irrelevant? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's actually, uh, there's a Buddhist, uh, they call sutta, which is uh, almost exactly about that topic. And basically, the idea is that whenever a person gives a gift, um, there's going to be some benefit to that, coming from that wholesome intention. If they give a gift thinking purely of their own self-interest, still it has some benefit, but less. And then it goes up this kind of graded hierarchy. I can't remember the name of the sutta, but I, I can look it up later. So, you know, then people, some people give a gift thinking, okay, yeah, I'd be reborn as a rich person. Other people give a gift thinking, uh, you know, 
Um, you know, when I give, it makes me feel happy. Other people give gifts thinking, uh, you know, this was a tradition in my family. Other people give gifts thinking, you know, there were great sacrifices in the past, let this be my sacrifice. So the interesting thing in that suit of the last three top reasons for giving a gift. So when a person gives a gift, it, it seems to generate this wholesome uh, energy, which is called karma or kamma. This kind of wholesome energy rebounds back on the giver in various ways that sometimes one can't predict, but wholesome ways. And so depending on the intention behind the gift, that energy can be stronger or weaker. So if a person's giving a gift like, uh, man, I look good, still some benefit to that but less. The top three for uh, top three highest reasons, interestingly enough, the third highest, as far as I remember, was when I give, it makes me feel good. The interesting second one is this was a tradition in my family. I want to carry on the tradition. That's the second highest reason. Yeah. The highest reason is that one gives a gift thinking, may this be uh, an ornament for my mind. May it be, uh, may it be a support for my mind. That's the highest reason. In other words, uh, may this be something that supports me mentally. And you know, the intention generally is that it links to one's quest for Nibbana. So that seemed to generate the most wholesome karma. So do you think at some point that can even deplete a person if they are relying on this act of giving to make them feel whole? At some point, they can feel empty as well? Yeah, if they stop giving. Yeah? Yeah, it's like anything else. If... Uh, uh, you know, if you start a car and get it moving, get it up to 100 miles an hour, if you take your foot off the gas, it, it eventually slows down and comes to a stop. So all these uh, things in the world that generate happiness in various degrees, like we talked about before, they seem to build uh, momentum in different ways. Or you can say build this kind of energy that one can then set one's intentions to various things based on that energy. Okay, you get a car going fast, you can set your course to hey, go right, go left, go wherever, you know, depending right. on how much gas you have in the tank. But uh, the highest thing that a person can set their compass on in Buddhism is, is Nibbana, is the ending of the need to feed. Because all the other goals, they uh, run out of gas. Right. Interesting. Um, so how do you feel that as a society, how can we practice selflessness? Um, perhaps not everybody can go down a journey of becoming a monk, but how can we still practice selflessness in our day-to-day? -day? So one of the, uh, the interesting things about the Buddhist conception of society is that, um, is that it has roles to it. So there's a recognition that what people do, everything people do has an element of self-interest. So in other words, if we're, as we were talking about with giving, if we do something that harms ourselves but benefits another person, that's not seen to be a good thing. That's seen to be bad. Actually, the person we should be most interested in taking care of is ourselves. Not in terms of like hoarding things from other people, right? But spiritually taking care of ourselves. So with this recognition, uh, the Buddhist conception of society is one that has these kind of win-win situations. So people are looking for their own self-interest, but uh, they do it in such a way that it benefits both people. And that's not in the way like the economic way. So like if a person is at work, one thinks, okay, I've got these different duties now that I'm at work and I've got these ways I should behave towards my boss. Person's boss thinks I've got these ways that I should behave towards my employee. If one's in one's family, one thinks I've got these ways I should behave towards my children. One has various duties towards them. 
So what this does is it, it comes from the recognition that not only is there giving in society, but there's also responsibilities in society that one has right. to fulfill. So to make a society a nice place to live, people need to all fulfill their mutual responsibilities towards one another. And uh, you know, basically not encroach on other people's areas of responsibility, not trying to you know, steal it off them or whatever it might be. So when one, one does this, one gains this kind of uh, a type of selflessness because part of the way that people interact with the world, especially in the West, is like things come to me because of my talent so I can get whatever I need. But in this attitude of just doing one's responsibilities, another person meeting halfway, one learns to realize that uh, it's, all, it's always a kind of team effort in mm -hmm. a sense. Right. So we can only do our part. Other people have to do theirs. It's right. also humbling. Right. So with that in mind, that's the Buddha's recommendation for living in society, is to try to be responsible in one's various roles, to fulfill one's duties in those roles. Amazing. So, um, you know, we are, so I know that we are, we're, we are about to run out of time. We've had a great, great, great session today. I learned quite a bit. I think our listeners are going to, um, you know, definitely, you know, take, take a lot from this. I have one last question for you. And that is, how can we learn to accept and enjoy the present moment? Well, one of the things is that uh, the present moment um, is not something that we necessarily need to accept or enjoy. It depends what's in the present moment. So our purpose in spiritual practice or in looking for happiness is to try to find the things that lead us onwards and cultivate those try to find the things that are pulling us backwards and eliminate those. So in each present moment, that's what we're looking to do. So we come back at traditionally meditation practice to the present moment because there's all this proliferation going on usually that pulls people into thoughts of the past, thoughts of the future, and brings them down. But we come back to the present moment with a purpose in mind. That purpose is to train our mind in wholesome qualities, eliminating unwholesome qualities, and to grow in spiritual abilities that lead us to, to Nibbana. So the present moment won't necessarily always be something to enjoy. If there is negative things happening in the present moment, if one has bad mind states in the present moment, one has to work to eliminate those. If in the present moment one has positive mind states coming up, positive uh, qualities coming up, one has to work to cultivate those. But there are also times in the present moment when uh, being active in and of itself isn't a skillful thing to do. Mm. Right? Thinking about something, trying to do something isn't a skillful thing to do. And in those situations, that's when the skillful thing to do is to just watch. But this as well is aimed at building a wholesome quality. So the Buddha gives this simile of a goldsmith. Sometimes a goldsmith knows when to hit the gold with a hammer. Sometimes he knows when to uh, cool it down or something like that. And some, uh, I can't remember the exact metaphor, but sometimes he knows just when to watch it. Mm. And when he does all these things in proportion, he can mold that gold into whatever ornament he likes. And so in the same way, in the present moment, there's going to be times when we have to hit things with a hammer. We have to get rid of our unwholesome qualities. Right. There's going to be times when we have to maybe, uh, you know, uh, heat up the gold a bit, cool it down, whatever, trying to cultivate wholesome qualities. And there's going to be times in the present moment when we just watch but all of these are for the sake of uh, molding our mind, uh, shaping our mind into something that's an instrument for happiness that leads us onwards uh, in our spiritual practice. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you 
uh, one day for, for sitting down and uh, talking with me today has been a pleasure. It's been very enlightening, and I think that our listeners are going to benefit from this greatly. Well, I'm very glad you started the podcast, and it's, it's been very nice to meet you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of the Finding Perspective podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and learned something new, please hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. To stay up to date with all things Finding Perspective, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Finding Perspective Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at underscore Kapil Guy. Hope you had a great week. Until next time.